What if, with the right mindset, anything is possible? And find out how. It's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka is here to inspire you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the Million Dollar Mindset. Today, Marla is here to inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power with the Million Dollar Mindset. Today, she'll share heartwarming stories, teach you tips and tricks to building a successful business, plus how to unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset. And now, here's your host, Marla Tabaka. And welcome to the Million Dollar Mindset. I am very excited about today's show, folks, because it's such an important topic. And as a business coach who works with lots and lots of small business owners, I think this is just one of the most critical topics, actually, that that we've had on the show. Today, we're talking culture and uh, company culture and the importance. And, you know, as small business owners, not everybody has the advantage of understanding what culture means and and really grasping how you can bring a very healthy and innovative culture into a small business. It's a little easier to imagine when you're looking at companies the size of Zappos or, you know, any other larger company. But how can we apply these same theories and philosophies to a smaller business? Well, today we're here with New York Times bestselling author Adam Bryant. Now, in addition to his book authoring, Adam writes the popular corner office feature in the New York Times business section. He served as the newspaper's senior editor for Futures, deputy national editor, and deputy business editor. Adam was previously a senior writer and business editor at Newsweek. So you think he knows his stuff? I'm guessing he does. In his most recent book, Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation, Adam shares insights and stories from his interviews with leading CEOs of companies like Zappos, JetBlue, Foursquare, eBay, Royal Caribbean Cruise, and even from Chef Mario Batali. Yes, even a chef's company has culture, okay? <laughs> so during our discussion today, you're going to learn how these CEOs created an environment to win even in this economy and how they attract and hold on to, there's the key folks, attract and hold on to the best and brightest employees to take them to the top of their game. So if you're wondering how you can avoid inertia and get creative ideas flowing at your company, well, you're about to find out. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us here today. Thanks for having me, Marla. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm very excited to discuss uh, this this topic with you. And you know, we we hear a lot about the importance of building a healthy culture. Yet, I work with mostly small small business owners, and even in the news where we see like every week there's there's a new interview with Tony Shea from Zappos, for instance, who truly is a leader in innovative culture. Yet, small business owners don't realize 
that they've unintentionally fashioned an unhealthy culture or where to begin to build a healthy and uh, positive, innovative culture. So for today's show, I'd really love to start with those basics because a lot of the people in our audience haven't had the advantage of working in corporate America where they may have experienced uh, some of these uh, important nuances of culture. So Brian, tell us exactly what a company culture is based on and why an intentional creation of it is so very important even to small business. Sure, it's a great starting point. And a couple of points right off the top, um, and you alluded to this earlier, Marla, but culture is a really fuzzy, amorphous topic. Uh, and, you know, if you and I, if you and I stood in front of a whiteboard and we said, well, what's culture? You and I could put a hundred things up there and they would all be true, right? Um, right. One of the things I really tried to address in my book, Quick and Nimble, is to figure out what are the biggest drivers of culture, um, the things that, if done well, have an outsized positive impact, and if done badly or not at all, have an outsized negative impact. And I study the transcripts for more than 200 of my interviews with CEOs where they talked at length about culture to really try to find what are the common themes. And I looked for things that would apply to a company with five employees um, mm -hmm. as well as 100,000 employees. So I think that's one uh, sort of framing point um, that's really helpful. The other thing about culture, and I know a lot of your listeners run small businesses, um, it's really hard to put at the top of the to-do list when you're right. running a yeah. small business, right? Because yeah. every day you're, put, you're putting out fires, you've got customer problems, supplier problems, um, and you've got 100 emails and you're working 18 hours a day, it's really hard to say, okay, I want to be mindful and deliberate about building a culture. Um, all that stuff just gets sort of swamped by the day-to-day, -day, and, I, and I completely get that. Uh, but one of the things that I've heard from so many of the CEOs I've interviewed, including a lot of people who started their company, they were employee number one and, and grew it to you know many times that, um, but I th the message that really came home from them is that you do have to think about culture. You do have to be deliberate about it because you're going to have culture whether you want it or not. And I think every company, every group, uh, every organization has its distinct culture, just like every country around the world has its distinct culture. It's just the all the subtleties that emerge from whenever you bring a a group of people together and people are complicated right and you put a mm -hmm. bunch of them together and it becomes exponentially more complicated so um, you really have to be thoughtful about it because otherwise you're going to get a culture that you're not happy with and you you had mentioned Tony Shea of Zappos Marlon and he mm -hmm. told me a great story um, before he joined Zappos he had a, a company that he was a co-founder of called Link Exchange that he ultimately sold to Microsoft but he told me a pretty powerful story that um, not long after he started the company, was growing very quickly, he actually felt like he didn't want to go to work, that he kept hitting the snooze button on his alarm uh, because he just wasn't excited to go there. And it was just a really powerful lesson for him uh, that, you know, culture is important. It does start at the top and that you can't just let it happen on its own. So those are some framing points. We can get into some details, but I, I hope those resonate for you and your mm -hmm. listeners. 
Yeah, most absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, so then where do we begin with this? You've got a small company, maybe eight, 10 employees, and all of a sudden they realize that, uh oh, we have not really created the framework here that we need for a really healthy culture. Maybe our employees aren't, well, I should actually pose that as a question. What are the signs that a small company doesn't have this framework in place? I think it's, uh, you can almost just feel it when you walk into a place where people aren't really talking to each other and communicating. I think there's an energy that you feel when you walk into an organization. And to me, and again, I've heard this from a lot of the CEOs I interview, that they can just tell by the amount of noise. And do they look around? Mm-hmm. Is, is everybody sitting in their cubicle and they spend their entire days with their face, you know, five inches from the screen, and that's how they communicate with each other? Or is there a good buzz to it? Um, Is there some energy, you know, people talking over the cubicle walls? Uh, Because the thing that I've come to appreciate about culture and, frankly, about innovation uh, is that it really operates at a very fundamental human level. At the end of the day, it's just how we relate to each other and interact with each other as human beings. I know there's this desire in the world of business to sort of create spreadsheets and quantify everything and put conceptual and analytical overlays uh, on everything about business to turn it into a science. Uh, And again, I appreciate that, and that's important. But I think what, what really separates companies from each other is the culture and culture is about those human relationships. Um, So a lot of the things that I've found, and again, I don't want to pretend that I've cracked some secret code, uh, but it's really just kind of recognizing patterns among the interviews on my part. And a number of themes emerge from the interviews, the things that, again, what are the biggest drivers of culture, Uh, you know, the things that, if done well, have an outsized positive impact. So um, just to start off, I have six things I can run through through them quickly, or if you want to ask more questions, that's fine. The, The first one is what I call a simple plan. And I know that sounds simple, but simple is hard. And it's hard to take a a complicated business in a fast-moving industry and really distill down into the one or two or three things that really matter to the company that you're going to use as kind of strategic goals for people uh, and also so that you can measure them. Um, because that people love to have a scoreboard. I, one of the things I've come to appreciate more over time is that people want to contribute. When they go to work, they, they want to do a good job. They want to be a part of a team, and it's the leader's job to show them what that scoreboard is, uh, to have the kind of conversation with them that little kids, you know, parents have with their little kids in the back seat when they're going off on a journey. It's like, where are we going and how are we going to get there? And I think it's a, a leader's job to be able to answer that question. And I do think it has to be simple because all the, the brain research shows that most people can't remember more than three things day to day, maybe four. Um, and so it's the leader's job to say these are the things that are really going to drive our progress and we're going to measure them. And if you do that right, I really think that creates a sense of teamwork, the kind of teamwork that you see on the sports field, whatever sport it is, because the scoreboard is so clear. Uh, And you get people on offense and defense contributing to that broader team. There's not that sense of, you know, I'm just playing for myself. But there has to be that scoreboard there so that people 
understand how the work they're doing contributes to the team. And, and for me, that's really the key test is, do I understand how the work I'm doing contributes to the broader team? Because if I don't, then I'm probably probably going to start pursuing my own things. So that's number one, if that resonates for you. It really does, Adam, and I love that question. Um, and, and that's something that every employer can actually pose to an employee on a regular basis is, do you understand how you know, you're contributing here and the work that you do is contributing to that, that broader picture? I love that. And we are actually going to go into our first break, and when we come back, we'll come back with your, your five other tips and, and go deeper into those because this is exactly perfect for our listening audience. So thank you, Adam. We're here here with Adam Bryant, and if you haven't picked up his new book, Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation, go on out and check that out. Unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on Toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Join the Executive Business Seminar with author and trainer, Dr. Risa Wolf, Ph.D. Are you looking for practical business tips and techniques for dealing with difficult situations or lowering speaking anxiety? Then this show is where you need to be if you are a business owner, corporate executive, or anyone ambitious about their career growth. Dr. Risa Wolf draws from her extensive mentoring background for business leaders and executives and interviews leaders who have practical solutions. Join Dr. Risa Wolf every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for your edition of the Executive Business Seminar right here on ABRN, the All Business Radio Network. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it all starts with attitude, and Marla is here to help. It's the Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Marlon Tabaka. And we're here with Adam Bryant, and we're talking about the really important drivers behind an innovative company culture. And Adam, when we went into break, um, when you were talking about your six tips, beginning with a simple plan, I love it. What else have you got for us there? Sure. Um, number two is what I call rules of the road, which is really about values. Uh, and I know that 
whenever you talk about values and company uh, culture, there's probably a good number of your listeners right now are rolling their eyes uh, and probably thinking this reminds me of some episode of The Office where, you know, Michael Scott comes out and says, hey, everybody, I just came up with our new values. And and I totally get that. Uh, But I also think values are incredibly important uh, to company culture because it's almost like forming a, a constitution, just like we have a constitution in the United States. If if somebody, you know, dropped down from outer space and said, I, I want to understand what is this United States of America really all about, we would probably point them to our constitution uh, as really good insight in terms of things that we value. This is what is really important to us. And I think there's a natural parallel for companies. Uh, it's just a matter of putting down in writing uh, what what are the behaviors that are really key for us? I think some companies get into trouble when they feel like they have to come up with a list that really captures the entire universe <laughs> of behaviors. Uh, and I've interviewed some CEOs who tell me they have, you know, nine values or ten or even fifteen. And I oh, don't goodness. think that's a good idea because again, most people, the brain science shows, can't remor- remember more than three things day to day. Um, So I I think there's a danger in having too many of them. Mm -hmm. And what I've also come to appreciate is that there's not really a right or wrong way. I think a lot of uh, business leaders wonder, should this be one of those bottom-up exercises where I, you know, the employees suggest them, or should we take them to an off-site, or should I write them? What I've come to appreciate is that it doesn't really matter how it's done. It's great to get employee input, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is living by them every day, uh, that you, you establish the values and then you use them as criteria for hiring people and for firing people. Uh, you hand out awards that reinforce the values, and that way it really becomes an active part of the, your culture. Uh, because the biggest danger, I, I've come to appreciate the fact that if you're not going to live by them every day, it's actually better not to do them, to go through the exercise. Um, Because if you go through the exercise and you get the posters on the wall and you get the laminated wall of cards that these are values, uh, and if you don't live by them every day, then that's actually worse. And and it can create a real danger for your company because if people see a gap between what the stated values are and how people behave and what they get away with, then that makes people cynical. Mm -hmm. And as one CEO told me, cynicism is the cancer that can really take root in a company and it can kind of metastasize and really be dangerous. So, uh, again, the point is to live by them every day. Keep the list short. I don't think more than three. Two is even better. Um, I talked to one CEO and the the – the two values at his company are be an owner and help others. And that's pretty good, right? I mean, those yeah. are pretty good values. <laughs> yeah, I love those because it, it says to me that, you know, that customer service and those relationships are really important and that I have some autonomy, right? I have some decision-making authority here and what it takes to make them happy. Exactly. Yeah. So those are good. Can you give us some maybe – Another example of what um, a company's values may be, just maybe from one of your other CEOs? 
Sure. Um, I, I interviewed a, a guy named Brad Garlinghouse who took over as CEO of a, a tech company called You Send It. It's renamed Hightail. And he went into the company and redid the values. And, and I like the ones that he came up with. It. It's be in, be real, be bold. And it's got a nice rhythm and rhyme to it, which makes it really easy to remember. But be in means, you know, be committed. Be real means be authentic. Let's have authentic communications with each other. And be bold is let's take risks. You know, we've got to be bold to to stay ahead in this business. Uh, so to me, that that checks off all the boxes. It's it's completely memorable. It's three or fewer, um, and it there's a sense of like you can you can see people saying that in a conversation. Like part of the reason you have values is that if you have disagreements. Um, it creates this kind of almost a third party to mediate, and the CEO doesn't have to play the referee all the time. That there's a sense of look, these are our values. You're not acting according to them, and I'm trying to have this kind of interaction with you. And if these are the values, then then let's do that. Um, so I think that's part of the role. Uh, there's one another tech company I called it. Uh, they've got a funny one called Draw the Owl. And it comes from this meme that uh, went around the Internet. It's sort of a, a funny thing, like how to draw an owl. Well, you know, the first panel is draw two circles, and then the second one is draw the rest of the owl. Um, and it's sort, of, it's sort of funny, but the reason and, – and what happened with this company is that it completely grassroots. It just kind of took hold. It, didn't, it wasn't the CEO issued a memo. It just – the employees started trading and became this, like, shorthand. So they adopted it as one of their official values. And what it really means is, you know, just do it. Just jump in and try and figure it out. Uh, because so much of what's happening in business is uncharted territory. It's not like there's some manual or playbook in a drawer for how to do stuff. So this draw the owl thing is just jump in. You know, figure it out. You'll figure it out. Just try. Uh, and to me, that's another good example to sort of – pick up something that's just happening very organically among the employees and then to sort of, you know, pick that out of the air and then say, all right, that's one of our values because that it, it's sort of like our DNA as a person. That's another handy way of thinking about it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Draw the owl. That's wonderful. Okay. All right. What's, what's your next strategy, Adam? Sure. Um, the next one is what I call a little respect. Uh, and what it basically means is that I think it's really important to treat employees with respect. Uh, and if, if all your listeners and you and I were, were in, a, in an auditorium together, uh, and I asked them, I said, how many of you have been either dissed or humiliated or disrespected by your boss in front of other people? And every time I've done this, there's a lot of hands that go up. Yeah. Let's face it, there are a lot of epically bad bosses out there. And mm -hmm. this has happened to a lot of people where you are humiliated by your boss in front of your colleagues. And it turns out there's literally nothing worse <laughs> yeah. that, you can, that, yeah. that you can do to people. Uh, and it has incredibly cascading negative effects in terms of culture. And again, I, I know you do a lot of talking about neuro leader, neuroscience, and there's a lot mm -hmm. of insights from uh, that world for this, too. So it turns out if somebody, if a boss humiliates you in front of your colleagues, it lights up the same part of your brain as if you were in physical pain. It's yeah. that damaging, uh, which 
goes a long way to explain why so many of the CEOs, I've lost count of them, so many of the CEOs I interview, when I ask them about early leadership lessons they've learned, they use the phrase scar tissue. They tell me about some really horrible boss they had early on who treated them that way, and that gave them scar tissue. And they said to themselves at that moment, if I'm ever a boss or a manager, I am never, ever going to treat somebody like that because I know how horrible it makes me feel. So my feeling is that you have to treat people with respect, not just not just because it's it's the right thing to do, but it's actually good for business. And why is that? Mm-hmm. The key phrase to me is best self. As, as a leader, as a manager, you've got employees. You want them to bring their best self to work every day. And this phrase comes up a lot with the leaders in terms of how do you create a culture. Because there's a very subtle and I think subconscious thing that happens when people go through the front door into work every day. And again, I think a lot of it is subconscious, but how much of, of yourself do you kind of park at the door when you walk into work mm-hmm. and you say, look, you know, I'm just doing this for money. It's just a paycheck. It's not really who I am. And you leave all this stuff at the door about your, your identity and the status in which you hold yourself and your self-image. You check a bunch of stuff. And I think part of a leader's job is to try and get people to leave as little as possible at the door and to bring it all into work because if somebody brings a lot of themselves into it and their you know their hopes and passions and energy and ambitions then you're going to get their best self and then you're going to get extra effort and and the person's going to be thinking about their job outside hours and they're going to be more committed to it and you're going to get better results of that yeah. and i think it it really starts at a fundamental level, which is you got to treat people with respect. Uh, and I know that sounds obvious, but I think it's a pretty powerful notion. And there are a lot of bad bosses out there who think that, well, I need to lead through fear because if I don't, then people aren't going to work hard. Um, and that's kind of an easy way to do it, but I don't think it's good for business. And it's no. also just not right at kind of a fundamental human level. Right. And, you know, another thing I see a lot, um, you know, Adam, is I've I've worked with clients who have admitted to treating their employees poorly. And so much of that comes from fear. And my expertise, of course, is with small business. Um, but I, I'm sure that it happens at larger corporate CEO level as well. Um, you know, you don't have a lot of money. Your business isn't producing. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And so who do you blame? You blame the employees, right, instead of owning yeah. it. And so I think it's important for listeners to see if that resonates with them. And, and if it does, to get some help around that because until then, you're not going to be the healthy leader that, that you, I know, at the heart of it, really want to be. So, so fear is yeah. a big driver, big motivator. And, and, I, and I heard a great... Uh, expression. It's, it's, a, it's a really handy shorthand to keep in mind when you're dealing with people, um, and it's called MRI. And hmm. that doesn't refer to medical equipment in this context, but what it stands for is most respectful interpretation. So if you're working with somebody and they do something or maybe they don't do something, and it makes you kind of fla- slap your forehead and say, mm-hmm. you know, what is wrong with this person? Right. You know, why, why aren't they doing it? Why? And, and you start asking yourself all these questions about, like, what is wrong with them, essentially? 
Yeah, and Adam, and, we are. I'm going to jump in here. I'm so sorry, but yeah, we're please. going into break, and we'll be right back. Unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. What does success mean to you? Money? Power? Fame? Having everything money can buy? Does it mean having a job or career that you love? A great family life? Or simply to be happy? If you're still searching for answers, then join us each Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for Primetime Success Radio, where Alan Skidmore and his special guests will discuss health, finances, relationships, being in business, and how you can have a life that is not only successful, but a life of meaning. Alan has been studying success principles for over 25 years through reading, attending seminars, interviewing successful people, and a daily lesson from the School of Hard Knocks. And now he wants to share that information with you. So join Alan Skidmore on Primetime Success Radio every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Rockstar Radio Network, as he takes you on a journey of finding the heart of your success. It's time to devote time to yourself and strap yourself in for a fun, down-to-earth, enthusiastic, compassionate, easy-to-understand discussion on the unlimited ways you can be all that you want to be. Join us for Bee Institute Radio with Christine McKee on Toginet Radio. Each week, Christine will have lively and open discussions and interviews, share stories and case studies, and hear from experts on the topic of the week. Christine, a registered psychologist from Australia and published author of Be by Design, How I Be is Up to Me, hosts lively discussions and interviews every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it all starts with attitude, and Marla is here to help. It's the Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Marlon Tabaka. And thanks so much for joining us here. Today, we are here with best-selling author Adam Bryant. Adam, going into break, we were talking about MRI, most respectful interpretations. So go ahead and finish that thought. Sure. Uh, it's, it's just a good reminder when you're dealing with somebody um, and, and you're kind of befuddled and confounded why somebody does something or doesn't do something. And it's good to remember MRI, which stands for most respectful interpretation. It's just a good way to give yourself just a moment to pause and say, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe the instructions weren't clear. Maybe I've mm-hmm. overloaded them and they've got 20 things to do. Maybe there's something going on with their lives. Uh, and the one leader I talked to really repeated this often and tried to make this a cornerstone of the culture, uh, and again, I think it's just a good—it's uh, it's a yeah. good shorthand uh, to set the tone for how people are going to interact with each other. Because if everybody is respectful to each other, then people are going to bring their best selves to work, and they'll be willing to share that sort of crazy quarter-baked idea that might 
turn into the next you know great business initiative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most certainly. Before you jump, think. Even if we've got that fear thing going, <laughs> you don't know where somebody else is coming from or what their perspective yeah. is because we all live within our own paradigm, right? And it, it yeah. definitely shapes what we see and experience in the world. So, all right. So we've got simple plan, rules of the road, and a little respect. What's up next? Well, a little respect kind of works in tandem. Think of it as like a part of a one half of a two-way street. So you have to treat people with, with respect, but that doesn't just happen in, in a vacuum. You don't treat them with respect no matter what. Um, so the other half of that two-way street, two-way street is uh, it's about holding people accountable. And uh, the title of my chapter is It's About the Team. And I think a lot of people talk about their businesses um, – in terms of family. And I totally get why they do that, and I applaud the impulse and the message they intend to send when they talk about the family is that we we care about our employees and we care about our employees' families. Uh, But I also think that that can sometimes send the wrong wrong signal. Um, I interviewed a a woman who runs a nonprofit and uh, that helps uh, teenage mothers, and when she went in there, she she kept hearing this talk uh, about we're a family, we're a family, and she got a little frustrated because she said she felt the culture wasn't as effective as it could be, and she finally stood up in front of everybody and said, "We're not a family. Yeah. <laughs> we're a we're a team." And she said, "You know, the thing about your family is that you can never fire your uncle Joe." <laughs> <laughs> And it does. It has like, an artificial feeling to it when you say that, right? Right. And, like, and some people go, no, this is not my family. My family's yeah. back home. This is work. And so, again, I understand the impulse when people say it, but I also think it can send the wrong signals. And if you think about your companies and organizations as a team, I think, you know, people have to play your position. We're counting on you to play your position. Um, and one of the the best tests that I've heard from one CEO who uh, runs kind of a medium-sized company, again, just good rules to have. Uh, his rule is don't say some, don't say you're going to do something and not do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like a pretty simple, again, slap my forehead rule. It's so obvious. But the fact of the matter is that most people don't do what they say they're going to do. Right. Yeah. Just over the months as, as I give talks to audience, I, I will often ask people, uh, and I've, I, I start asking some of the CEOs, I said, what percentage of the population do you, are, are people who always do what they say they're going to do, that you can always rely on them as opposed to being the person who looks you in the eye, says, you know, I'll give you that report on Thursday, and you just know they're not. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you to be my focus group of one, Marla. What percentage of the population have a, a high say-to-do ratio so that they always do what they say? Boy, I'm going to be really optimistic and say 30%. Okay. And, <laughs> and, and, and you're on the high end of what I've heard. I've heard a lot of people come in at like 10 to 15, maybe 20. Mm-hmm. I've heard some 30, so... Your optimism is showing through. That's great. Uh, But it's less than half the population for sure, right? Yeah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And and so, you know, to me, that's a a good thing. Like, what if you just have a rule at your company that anything that comes out of your mouth, you got to deliver on? If you say you're going to do something, you got to do it. 
because when you're a small company, it really is like a team. Everybody is relying on everybody else. And the title of my book is Quick and Nimble. You know, if if you want a slow company, <laughs> the mm-hmm. best thing to do is to have a bunch of people who never do what they say they're going to do because that slows everything down. If you know that all the people in your company are going to do what they say, that actually speeds things really up. And you also don't have to think about it because if you work with employees who are that, you know, they don't do what they say, it chews up a lot of psychic energy and time because it's like, oh, yeah, here comes Thursday. I'm not surprised you didn't get me the report. Now I've got to chase after you. And then you're going to tell me, oh, I'll get it to you Monday, and then I'm going to have to chase after you again. Not only does it waste an incredible amount of time, but it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this whole um, family value kind of leads to another problem that's tied in here is you've got those employees, less than 50% of the population who actually deliver and deliver on time, but you're a family. And so you don't fire them. You don't discipline them. You don't let them see the consequences of it because you're a family. That's a dangerous place to be. It really is. And it, again, you want to care about your employees. And I think leadership at the end of the day the reason leadership is so hard is because you always have to find the balance point between two opposing forces. It's, it's finding the sweet spot in the paradox. And to be an effective leader, you have to care. You have to care about people. You have to show them respect. You have to listen really well. You have to have a certain degree of empathy because then they will respond and they'll and they'll follow you. At the same time, though, you also have to keep some distance and and say, look, we've got a broader goal here as a team, uh, and my job is to be respected, not to be liked. And if you can't play your position on the team, then there's going to be consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so finding that balance point can take a long time as as leaders evolve. Yeah, yeah, it can. It can. All right. This is just fun stuff. Thank you. (laughs) Sure. All right. What's our next one? Sure. So we just uh, we just made a two-way street, right? Treat people with respect, but at the mm-hmm. same time, hold them accountable. Now, some of your listeners are probably saying, Adam, that sounds really good in theory, but you know that can sort of break down in practice. And then the next rule kind of addresses that, which is what I call adult conversations. Uh, call it candid feedback or, or frank discussions. Uh, but it's just about having those what might be tough conversations with your employees. And what I've come to appreciate, I've, I've seen it myself and I've heard it from the hundreds of CEOs I've interviewed, is that most people literally go out of their way to avoid having these conversations. You've got something that uh, is going on with an employee. There's certain behavior that becomes like this hangnail for you. It's maybe not that big a deal, but it really bothers you. Uh, and it's never going to get better over time. I think the way most uh, managers deal with it, and trust me, I, I, I'm a manager myself. I've been guilty of this uh, sometimes, um, is that we rationalize away. Oh, it's just a one-off. Maybe they're having a bad day. You say to yourself, oh, you know, it was just once. If they do it again, I'll, I'll talk to them then. And then they do it again. And then you say, I've got 100 emails, and i got this deadline staring me in the face. Um, I just don't have time to talk to him about it. So then you say to yourself, well, maybe nine months from now I'll bring it up in the performance review. <laughs> yeah, and, right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's just kind of dangerous. That's going to 
create a lot of uh, friction. And um, I, I think when you don't have these adult conversations, it's almost like bottling up energy. And, and we see this in, you know, just the sort of day-to-day relationships of the people who are closest to us, right? Not just our colleagues. Um, you know, I've been married 27 years and, you know, you have these, you know, you and your spouse, you're not on the same page with something. And then you finally talk about it and have a healthy discussion about it. Uh, and and then you feel like oh it's all this energy has been released again and that happens at work too uh, and there is an art to it I mean there's there's some subtleties that I've learned from talking to the leaders I've interviewed and uh, there's a great expression I heard which is don't go over the net and it's a metaphor from volleyball or tennis and what it basically means is that when you're giving somebody feedback you never say anything that suggests you know why somebody is doing something or that you're making assumptions about what is motivating somebody that explains their behavior. That's going over the net as opposed to staying on your side of the net. Um, So, you know, if I was working with you, Marla, and Marla, I know you'd always show up to work on time um, because you're built that way, but if, if you weren't the kind of employee, there's two ways to have that conversation. I could say to you, Marla, I notice you showing up 20 minutes late to work every day, and um, and it seems like you don't care. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you would say to me, Adam, how dare you say that to me and tell me what I care about and don't care about? And you would be completely, uh, you know, it would be totally legitimate for you to say that because I'm way over the net, right? I'm making right. statements that suggest I know why you're doing something. But with a very subtle tweak, if I stay on my side of the net, I would say, Marla, I notice you're showing up 20 minutes work for uh, 20 minutes to work every day. Uh, it makes me feel like you don't care. Mm-hmm. Then I'm staying on my side of the net, and you can't really argue with that too much because I'm just talking about how I'm feeling. Right. Um, and so that's you know that's a good little trick. Um, and the other thing is just to have the conversations. It's 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 really hard to them, and they are stressful. I totally get that. Um, and it's usually just those kind of first words. Uh, it's like going for a run. You know, they always say that the, the first step is the hardest. I think it's the same with these kind of conversations. If there's a, a you know, a, a tough problem with somebody, it's just starting the conversation because they know why you're having the conversation. Yeah. And the, yeah. they're probably relieved by the fact that we're finally going to talk about it. So it's just starting it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's something we're going to go into our final break, but I think that's something that's important for people to realize is that typically when these conversations come about, it's a relief to both parties. And so keep that in mind. It doesn't have to have a, it doesn't have to be like totally laden with downside. (laughs) So here we go into this break. We'll be right back. Unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. In the annals of recorded history, there has never been anything that can compare to home movies. But now in this modern era, where do you turn for the best information? Right here. It's the Home Movie Legacy Project. 
hosted by Rhonda Vigent. Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Central here on the Rockstar Radio Network. Learn how to organize, digitize, share on social media, use as genealogy research, repurpose, or even monetize found footage. Discover ways to find films about your own family that you didn't even know existed. Or create a documentary that can use the power of home movies to deliver a message that can impact the lives of many. For more on Rhonda and the show, go to our website, homemovielegacy.com. Then be here as the journey continues with the Home Movie Legacy Project with Rhonda Vigent. Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Central here on the Rockstar Radio Network. Be sure to register your copy of Sam at www.spatialaudio.com. You'll feel warm and squishy inside once you do. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it all starts with attitude, and Marla is here to help. It's the Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Marla Tabaka. And I hope that you'll all go over and visit this week's week's ink column i work with a lot of growth stage companies and you know they're they're always looking for that rock star superstar talent but they don't necessarily have the money for it so i went out in search of some people i could interview to find out how do you attract this this rock star talent when you're ready to go to the next level but have very little money and i actually found a wonderful example of an unknown startup with no venture funding actually wooing away a former principal of indiegogo and uh, and to come over to their startup. So if you go on over to inc.com slash author slash Marla hyphen tobacco, uh, you'll find that story. And I think you'll find some great tips and you will find out that a million dollar vision can be more enticing than a million dollars. So check it out. And today we're here with Adam Bryant and um I love what you said going into break, Adam, and having those adult conversations and staying on your side of the net, not putting the other person on the defensive before they even sit down in the chair is really yeah. important. Yeah, yeah, love it. All right. So what's next for us? Um, the last one on my list of six things that I call setting the foundation that I, I really think are the essentials for an effective culture, um, again, regardless of the size or industry and all that. Um, so we've done five. Uh, the last one, you might say that's kind of a small thing compared to the other ones, Adam, mm-hmm. but I actually think it has an enormous impact on corporate culture. Uh, and the chapter is called The Hazards of Email. Mm. And text. And I think... <laughs> And I think email is really dangerous uh, yeah. for corporate culture if it's not used properly. Uh, and the crazy thing about email, too, is that it was created as this productivity tool, right? A communication tool. It kind of shrinks the world, and, and you can have all this instant communication with people. But I, I think it's actually horrible as a communication tool. And the problem, and one CEO I interviewed really really nailed it for me. He said, the problem with email is that things get lost in translation. And to me, that's really the key phrase. That, uh, And it's probably happened to you a bunch, Marla. It's probably happened to your listeners a lot. Uh, it certainly happened to me where you send somebody an email and you think it's so obvious and so clear. It's like saying the sky is blue, the ocean is deep. I mean, that level of simple and straightforward. 
And then you get this email back from the person that makes you think, wait a minute, what, what did you think I was saying? Uh, and then you start getting your back up because mm-hmm. you start wondering, why would this person think I was that kind of person? And then it can escalate from there, and suddenly you're into this sort of argument over email uh, that yeah. chews up your entire afternoon, and how's that for a productivity tool? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've just talked to a lot of CEOs that try to make um, – very explicit the rules in their in their companies about email because they know how dangerous it can be. So one of the rules is there's no arguing over email. You and I could have like one round of disagreement. I send you an email, you disagree with me, I disagree with you. At that point, we have to stop and right. get off email and either pick up the phone or you and I get on Skype or if we're in the same office, do something really radical and, and stand up for my desk and come down and talk to you in person. Um, because if you do that, you can solve a problem almost instantly, right? Yeah, you know, definitely. You, you, can have, you can have all this miscommunication over email, but then you go walk into somebody's office, it takes two minutes, and you're high-fiving each other and saying, you and I should have lunch. Yeah, yeah I know. I know, and it's it's amazing how many strong-willed brilliant, intelligent, creative people avoid what they view as conflict, where there doesn't have to be conflict. And so I think that's why people tend to use email in this way instead of having the conversation. Crazy. Right. That's exactly right. And and the thing about culture, I mean, we talked about this at, at the beginning of the show, just how amorphous it is and what a fuzzy concept it is. But to me, culture at the end of the day, is it's really the sum total of the relationships that people have with each other at work. It's that, it's that unique connective tissue that people have with each other. And the reason email is so dangerous is that, first of all, email does nothing to actually build those relationships, right? You generally don't get closer to somebody because right. of some email. Maybe it's like a shared joke or something, at best. So it doesn't really do anything to build relationships compared to talking to somebody in person. But it's much more likely to damage what little connective tissue is, is there in the first place because it's so easy to get in disagreements because things get lost in translation. And then you get in an argument with somebody and, you know, as one CEO told me, email taps into this really bad part of our brain, which is the part that always wants to have the last word. Right. It's like and that's when it starts escalating and then people start see seeing each other and suddenly you've got the jets and the sharks and the West Side story and you've got this rumble in your own company and CEOs step in and say, Stop, we have to stop doing this. Yeah. Um you know, it's just one little thought experiment. I mean if you if you figure that you know, the first phone call happened in what was it, eighteen seventy six and the first email happened in 1971, and we thought, wow, that's progress. What if, just for the sake of argument, just as kind of a thought experiment, what if email was created in 1876, and then in 1971, somebody invented something called the phone and the phone call? We would all be going, this is so incredible. (laughs) Yeah, we'd be picking it up a lot more often, wouldn't we? Right, we'd be going... (laughs) This is such an amazing communication tool. I can hear all this nuance and this tone, and I feel like I'm really close to the person. I understand what they're saying. It's so much better than email where I could never really understand if they were joking or being serious or whether they were angry. 
You know, because that's the crazy mm-hmm. thing about emails, especially when you introduce them to the sort of boss-employee relationship. If you get an email from your boss, you know, a lot of the times you're sort of like this amateur archaeologist, right? You're sort of mm-hmm. dusting it. It's like, what does this mean? The, right. They just send me an email saying, can you come see me? Yeah. It's like, oh, it. no. It's like, is this big? Is it like, do they do they want to have dinner with you on Saturday or are you in trouble or it sounds like a crazy, crazy sounds like stress. a dating woman. Sounds like a dating woman too. You know, they they do. I mean, women read. Yeah. I hate to general, you know, generalize like that, but do women read so much between the lines? And when you receive a text yeah. or an email from somebody, you're all you're like you said. You're going in. You're really judging and reading between the lines. What could it mean? What could it mean? I love it. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. And one of the fun parts of your book, and lots of fun parts in the book, but is a cultural tool that you describe around bosses who provide like a user manual to their quirks. Yep. <laughs> Tell us a little about that. It kind of sounds odd. <laughs> it does sound odd, but I, I feel like I've, I've seen the future. I predict in 30, 40, 50 years, I think everybody will have one of these. So the basic idea is, again, let's say you and I were, were brand new colleagues and you were my boss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to be literally, it's like our first day working together. What if I said to you, um, Marla, over the over the course of the next 12 months, I'm going to find out things about you as a boss. Uh, there's going to be some things that are, you know, your pet peeves, and everybody has them, right? I'm going to find out what your pet peeves are, and I'm probably going to find out the hard way because I'm going to do something like three times, and then we're going to have to have one of those tough talks. So I'm going to find out what your pet peeves are. I'm going to find out your quirks, and everybody has quirks, right? But I'm going to find out your quirks. And I'm also going to find out the things that I could do that are going to earn me an extra gold star or two, the things that really make you go, yeah, that's I love that. And so what if, and again, it's a what if exercise, what if yeah. on this first day of you working, you and I working together, you were to give me a, a one-page uh, piece of paper that summarizes what all those things are that are unique to you, so that the things, again, that I'm going to find out about you over the course of the year, and what if we call that a user manual? Um, <laughs> in the same way that, you know, when you get a computer or, or a new humidifier or anything, you pick up the user manual, and it's basically for best results, this is what you should know about this machine and how to use it. What if bosses were like that? What if every boss had a user manual so that I would understand that, you know, my boss likes really fast, email responses. You know, that's the kind of thing that can earn me an extra gold star. It doesn't mean I have to get up at four in the morning, but that he really likes fast email responses. So that was kind of, and I, what, what happened was this isn't just theory. I've, I've actually interviewed two CEOs who literally went through this exercise and they did it for the reason that I just explained. They just figured, you know, people are going to find this stuff out anyways. What if they knew that about me on day one? And the other great thing about it is that it takes a lot of the mystery because when you first start working for a brand new boss, you spend a lot of your psychic energy trying to figure out like, okay, oh, yeah. what's my boss like, yeah. right? What's you know, I'm trying to figure them out. What if they gave you that piece of paper? So they basically saying, this is what I'm about. Um, you know, it might change. I'm not saying it covers everything, but it takes some of the mystery about out of what I'm like as a boss. And then people can focus more on their work. 
So that's kind of the, the notion behind it. And I, it just, to me, it makes so much sense. And the CEOs that I interviewed said it just has such a profound impact on their culture uh, that they're big fans of it. Wow. And it makes them human, too, because it takes setting aside the ego to recognize your quirks, because you're not going to see them if you don't do that. Right. And, and they even went through the exercise um, where they wrote up what they thought were their, you know, their quirks, their user manual. And then they showed it to some people they had worked with for a long time. And I think that's a good part uh, of the exercise, too, because you get perspectives on yourself that you might nice. not have otherwise. But it, it also takes a really secure person, because that's a risk, right, you know, mm-hmm. to, to put those things down on paper. Um, it, it is risky. It's, it's much easier to be that sort of bad boss where you have all the power and you, right. know, you sometimes run into these bosses who say, you know, I like to keep people on their toes and, you know, creative tension and all that other stuff. Um, I don't think that's smart at the end of the day yeah. because you want people focusing on the work, not what mood is the boss in today. So exactly. that's some of the thinking behind it. Yeah, I love it. That's a fun note to end the show on. Thank you, Adam. Adam, tell us, we've got just a minute left here before we wrap up this show. Tell us where our listeners can find you and where they can buy this fabulous book. Sure, thank you. Um, The website is adambryantbooks.com, all one word, uh, or you can find it on uh, Amazon and other other websites called Quick and Nimble, um, and I hope your readers enjoy it. And will we find you online at the New York Times, your corner office feature? Yeah, if you just Google Adam Bryant and corner office, you can see the archives, and I've got more than okay. 300 interviews there, and wow. they're all about 11, 1,100 words, uh, so they're not that long, and they give you a great mm-hmm. sense of how different people lead. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It was a very enjoyable and informational show, Adam. I appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks for having me on, Marla. Mm-hmm. And you know where you can reach me, MarlaTabaka.com, and you can email me at Marla at MarlaTabaka.com and find me on Twitter and Facebook and all those great places under the same name because that's me. And we'll see you here next week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for being a part of the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka from Toginet. If you've always known there was more out there for you, but you just weren't sure how to get there, 